Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Neon, the history behind pop culture. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round, I'm going to be talking to you about Battlefield 1, the video game. And obviously, as we go through this, we'll be talking quite naturally about the Ottoman Empire, Nazi propaganda, and the peace and love movement of the 1960s just a few stops on our way round Battlefield 1. To go here, Brenda, this guy has been creeping around since at least 1700. Not possible. Well, you've been here for three and a half hours. Now, how many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything? Unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. So if you don't know what that particular game is, it's a first-person shooter set, well, you probably presume from what I've just said, World War II, but no, no, you're wrong. It's World War I. Now, to set the scene a little bit about 
about the world of first-person shooters at the moment, the state of them, as it were, is if we rewind about 20 years or so, actually, let's go a little bit further. The very, very first first-person shooter was something called Wolfenstein 3D, which involved a guy called Blasterwitz running around in 2D world which was made to look cunningly 3d shooting an awful lot of uh nazis and german soldiers and then sort of cyborg german soldiers and then of course a sort of mutant robot hitler was the final thing that you could shoot yeah those guys used that uh, and it created doom so the original doom was a was a reskin basically of uh, wolfenstein 3d and fast forwarding many years, actually in the uh, winter of 2017, a new uh, Wolfenstein had come out and got some pretty good reviews as well. But the point was that for quite a few years, you had an awful lot of first person shooters, a bit like Doom, a bit like Quake, a bit like Unreal Tournament, which were all science fiction. You had weird and wonderful weapons and gadgets and things like that. And it was boom, boom, blam, blam, blam. And then you got Medal of Honor coming out. And I remember when that first came out, it blew everybody's socks off. Uh, this was all in the uh, late 1990s. And really what it was, was Saving Private Run, the first person shooter. Except in those days, the graphics were rather limited. But I remember replaying the first Call of Duty. I think it was on the original PlayStation uh, not Call of Duty, sorry, Medal of Honor, over and over again. Medal of Honor was where it was for a few years, but then I've just sort of slipped that name in. Call of Duty came out, and it was very much a clone of Medal of Honor. It was still all set in World War II, and there was quite a lot of cachet around World War II. There was really operatic music, and people were clearly harking back to things like Band of Brothers and uh, Saving Private Ryan, and, and it was... They all had a sort of sense of seriousness to them. But on and on they went, and people got a little bit bored of the fact that, oh, here I am with a Tommy gun again, and oh, here I am trying to knock out another Panzer tank again, etc. And so then you got Call of Duty Modern Warfare, which suddenly jumped the first-person shooter into the modern genre, into the here and now, people using choppers, holding automatic weapons, etc., etc., grenade launchers, and it absolutely blew everybody away. No pun intended, but you get the idea. But the point was that that was so successful that everybody dropped the whole World War II thing, and indeed the, the last two Medal of Honor games were rather shameless and pale imitations of the whole Call of Duty Modern Warfare. And that was kind of sad to see such a great franchise fall to the wayside. But then everybody got rather bored of how the fact that everything was a bit brown and military -y, and it was always, you know, get uh, Charlie Point, uh, Semper Fi and all this kind of stuff. And even Call of Duty had got to the point where it was now set in the near future and we're starting to see a creeping in a sci-fi element, but it was all still very gritty and camo and, uh, you know, uh, call in an airstrike and all this kind of stuff. And another group of games, which I always liked, were called the Battlefield games. Battlefield 3 was a, one of these modern day shooters, but the great thing about the Battlefield games as a whole is they had really big maps. 
So you could fly an aircraft across them. You could drive a tank across them. Yes, you could have infantry engagements, but if you had to get to the other side of the map, it would take you probably literally 10 minutes of, of running your soldier across, or you could jump into a jeep and, and do it. I love the tactical elements of the Battlefield games, but they, like all the other ones, were beginning to show uh, a, a certain amount of fatigue. So where to go to next? And there was an interview with one of the chief creators of Battlefield 1, which is a stupid name for like the fifth game in the series. But any, anyway, let's not go there. But they said, hey, look, let's do World War One. That's not an area that people really have done, done many shooting games in. And the response was, well, isn't that all trenches and bolt action rifles? And so they actually created a, a, a demo level to show uh, the powers that be that Battlefield 1 could be a lot more than just sitting in a trench waiting for the artillery to hit you. Now, it's still a game. It is not a World War One simulator. But I have been blown away by the depth of research that it's shown, the fact that it's done a brilliant job of sneaking in history uh, to all these sort of teenage boys, and also taught me a few things about some of the more weird and wonderful weapons. Now, to be clear, something like the Lee Enfield 303 rifle, that's what the British soldiers had. And actually, one of the things that annoys me about that, one of the genius things about the standard British rifle of World War I and World War II is it has a bent bolt. I hope you know what a bolt action rifle is. That's where you kind of flip up the, this sort of metal pin that's sticking out the side of the, of the, of the rifle. You, you, you flick it up, you pull it back, you push it forward, you pull it down again, and that reloads the gun. Now, the thing about the German Gewehr rifles of World War One is they were slightly longer than the Lee Enfield 303s and they could shoot slightly further. But they had a straight bolt. The Lee Enfields had a bent bolt. Please bear with me on this. This is uh, this comes to an interesting punchline. The problem with a straight bolt is, is when you reload, you have to look away from the target. You have to take your eye away from the sight because you have to work that bolt. But if it's a bent bolt, you don't have to do that. And that meant that the Lee Enfield 303 was one of the fastest firing bolt action rifles. Indeed, there are a number of occasions where the British, the, the original British soldiers right at the beginning of World War One, who'd been using these rifles for years and really knew them at the, as to be as effective as they really knew how to make, get the most out of them. We know that the British were basically armed with Lee Enfields, but the German reports that they were under machine gun fire because they didn't realise how fast you could fire a Lee Enfield. So the point is, you, can't, you don't have to look away from the target as you reload, but you do have to do that in Battlefield 1. That is the geek historian in me being slightly miffed at the game. But what it does show you is that even in World War 1, and I knew about the, the, the German Stormtrooper submachine gun, but uh, it, it shows you all kinds of experimental weapons from World War One. But the other key thing about the game is it really helps me and my argument that World War One is the most misunderstood, well-known period of history. Well, what do you? What does that mean? And I know there's a caveat in there. Well, there are many misunderstood moments from history which people don't know anything about. But misunderstood moments of history that people think they know something about, that's dangerous, okay? And I would say that World War I has been missold to us at school. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the poetry. 
We've all had to sit there and read Dolce et and all the other ones. Gas, gas, quick boys, a fumbling of ecstasy, an ecstasy of fumbling and all this kind of stuff. Um, look, I can't do poetry. I'm not the poetry guy, okay? But I find it really weird that one of the main ways we know about this world war is through poetry and not photography, for example. We tend to know most of what we know about World War II through moving footage. Well, we do also have moving footage of World War I. I, it would make more sense if we knew, knew something like the Crimean War, the U.S. Civil War through poetry. But again, we have photos. So actually, that's what most people use as a point of reference. The thing about poetry is, as beautiful as it is, it's not it's not uh, journalism. It, you know, it's there to create a sensation. And obviously, uh, one of the powerful things about a lot of these poets is they died in the trenches. You put all that together and it sounds like A... Everybody spent four years sitting in a trench. That's not true. And B, the whole thing was completely futile and, and pointless. Oh, and C, the only places people fought were in trenches in the Western Front. None of that's true, but that's what the perceived wisdom tends to be. For starters, this idea of lions being led by donkeys isn't true. The generals of all sides understood that their men degraded in the trenches. And therefore, I know this for a fact for the British, and I would assume it would be similar times from, for the, both the Germans and the French and the Austro-Hungarians and blah, 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 is frontline troops were in those trenches for no more than 10 days. And then they were rotated out because they couldn't possibly stay there. I remember as a kid reading one of those poems about the guns and sort of like the constant bombardment and the lack of sleep and the terrifying. It's like, how could anybody not sleep for four years just under constant bombardment? Well, the answer is because that never happened. That's not a thing. The thing about gas as well is, you know, people weren't being gassed all the time. Gas was used by all sides. But interestingly, gas didn't tend to kill people. Those pictures of those men blinded holding onto each other's shoulders is shocking. And I'm not, I am certainly not pro poison gas, okay? Poison gas is a bad thing. But the thing that you don't tend to get told is that those men, almost all those men recovered from their wounds. It's worth pausing on and saying that, do you know what? Adolf Hitler got gassed in World War One. He got a medal for bravery, being able to still continue carrying out messages, which is a dangerous job in World War One. Uh, uh, and also he was he was gassed. Now, if there's one person that should have really died from all the gas, it would have been Adolf Hitler. But the point is, it shows you that people did recover. And that's not the way it's explained. So, Let's go back to Battlefield 1 and some of the ways it sort of breaks down these myths. It does have a number of very cool battles where you start in trenches and you can run across no man's land and, and those sorts of things. But one of the first that sort of blew me away is they spent quite a lot of time on the Eastern Front. We forget that the Ottoman Empire was involved in World War One. The interesting thing about the Ottoman Empire, and, and I guess full disclosure in 2018, I have released a book about the Ottoman Empire called The Sultans. So, yes, that's The Sultans by Jim Daduccio, available now in all good bookstockists, or you can just go to Amazon. But anyway, the point is, I start in the 1300s when the empire started, and I finish in the 1920s, which is genuinely when the Ottoman Empire ended. The last major war that the Ottoman Empire, something that had existed since the time of the Crusades, I find that weird, was World War I. How weird is that? But anyway, the point is, 
When people think of the Ottoman Empire, there's probably three things that stick in people's minds. There is uh, the siege of Constantinople in 1453. There, people might well have heard of Suleiman the Magnificent. He was in the 1500s. And then people know about the Battle of Gallipoli uh, against the Turks, in adverted commas. Now, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into this, but the Ottoman Empire is not the same thing as the Republic of Turkey. They are, there were huge amounts of population in the Ottoman Empire that were not Turks. They were Arabs, they were Armenians, they were Serbs, they were Greek. They were all kinds of different ethnicities and even religions in the Ottoman Empire. And therefore, what's happening in World War I is a sort of big, swirling mass of people in lots of different areas. And in Battlefield One, you do indeed do... Gallipoli, and slightly cliched, you do actually do it from the point of view of of, of an Anzac. This is these were the New Zealand and Australian soldiers that fought in at, at Gallipoli, and they did so, and they did so bravely. I, I have no problem with that. But again, a misreading of it is there are actually more British and French soldiers at Gallipoli than there were Anzacs. But the thing is, it meant more to the Anzacs. To the British army, it was just one of many places the Brits fought. But to Australia and New Zealand, it's kind of where their national identity was forged, and therefore there's more emphasis put on it. But that's not the same thing to say they were the ones largely doing the fighting. And indeed, some people have even gone to the point of sort of saying, oh, yeah, well, they were led by the incompetent British who didn't care about uh, New Zealand and Australian lives. That's not true. And, you know, the British soldiers uh, died just as hard as, as the Australians and New Zealanders. But anyway, it does Gallipoli. But it also does, shows you an amphibious assault in what is now modern day Iraq and the Ottoman assault on the Suez Canal. That was a real thing, by the way. Uh, it happened in 1915 and the Ottoman soldiers, 20,000 of them, led by German officers, they actually sent engineers up ahead as they marched through the well, modern day sort of Israel and Palestine, and then on through the Sinai Desert to get to the Suez Canal. But they sent engineers on ahead to dig wells because they knew they had to keep these men alive and supplied as they marched through a desert. Had World War I happened maybe 10 years earlier, this attack on the Suez Canal might well have been uh, might well have happened successfully, and the entire sneak attack was well planned. It's just Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get thirty, thirty. Ready to get thirty, ready to get twenty, twenty, twenty. Ready to get twenty, twenty. Ready to get fifteen, 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 fifteen. Just fifteen bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It didn't happen 10 years earlier, and the British had spotter planes. And no matter how well you try and hide... 20,000 soldiers in a desert, you can't hide them from an airplane. And so the British knew that they were coming. Even so, some of the Ottoman soldiers were able to get across the Suez Canal, and there was furious fighting there for several days. And the Ottomans acquitted themselves well. Had they captured the Suez Canal? Well, that might have been enough of a negotiation chip to sort of get uh, get Britain to negotiate some kind of separate peace with the, the Ottoman Empire. Who knows? Ultimately, they lost. But at Gallipoli, they won. But these are very different battles than what's going on in Gas Gas, Quick Boys, Passchendaele, all that kind of stuff. The Somme, bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. And does show you that there was areas of extreme movement uh, throughout the Middle East. There was there was some sort of trench fortifications. There were three battles of Gaza, for example. But um, motorized. Uh, motorized armored cars with Vicar machine guns, uh, uh, turrets, they were used in the Middle East. They weren't used on, on the Western Front because cars would just get bogged down in the mud. That's why the tanks were invented. And indeed, one thing that Battlefield 1 does remind you, and again flies in the face of this cliche about World War One, is how... The reality is that the the all sides try to evolve tactics. And I'm even going to argue that the trenches themselves were a sign of modern tactics. Why didn't Napoleon end up being stuck in trenches somewhere? Why didn't Julius Caesar end up having all his men sitting around for several years in exactly the same place? Because they couldn't, because the technology didn't allow it, because food preservation didn't exist in those days. The reality is the reason why men sat in trenches, the reason why the Western Front fossilized was because of modern technology. You could ship tens of thousands of cans of bully beef and peaches and soup and whatever out to the front. The, the idea of the men having almost zero rations is not true. Yes, stuff spoilt in the trenches. Being in a trench was not fun. But being in a trench is not the same thing as being on the front line. There were supply trenches. There were communication trenches. There were literally the front line trenches. But they weren't all the same thing. The actual trench networks would, go, would push from the front line to the back line over at least a mile at times. So there were lots of different places where people could live. And because they knew where to send the food to the troops, Starvation wasn't a thing on the Western Front. That didn't stop soldiers obviously complaining about these things, and sometimes supplies broke down, and if you were in the middle of a battle or under bombardment, you might not get your meal that day. But the idea of this sort of mass starvation and not being able to feed the troops just isn't actually true. The tank was invented to go across trench works. 
they came in both male and female. The males had six-pounder guns. The females had Vicar machine guns. The sort of weird lozenge shape was to allow them to sort of tra traverse these trench works. And the guns, the six-pounders or machine guns, would actually be able to pivot 90 degrees so as they went along the trenches they could shoot down the trenches into uh, into the trench works now people have complained going well the first the first tanks weren't very fast they could only do about four miles an hour that's true but they were, weren't designed to just blast off on their own they were designed to roll towards the enemy with infantry behind them and the infantry weren't going to be able to move much faster than four miles an hour over broken terrain so actually the speed had nothing to do with the inefficiency. Oh, well, they broke down quite a lot. Yes, they did. But for brand new technology, trying to get machines working in thick mud, what else were you expecting? Were you hoping that, that they would just charge horses? The reason why defense was so uh, important and so effective in World War I is because of the relatively recent invention of the heavy machine gun, the Maxim gun being the, the Maxim was uh, an American who actually uh, created the uh, Maxim, then later Vickers machine gun, which um, he did it for the British. Um, but by by World War One, all sides had a variation of it. They could fire 300 rounds of high velocity bullets uh, every every minute so trying to get across no man's land with those things firing at you was very very difficult you had the ground all churned up through artillery not cannons cannons hadn't been a thing for about 50 years hydraulic artillery you know those guns where you see the the actual barrel sort of push back into the gun itself why is that important gem well, the answer for that is because cannons, you see them far and then sort of roll backwards and they have to roll them back into position. That means you have to constantly keep doing re-aiming. Hydraulic ones, you fire it at a point and the next time you fire it, it'll hit the same point. So you've got modern artillery, modern machine guns. Oh yeah, there's this stuff called barbed wire, which, which broke up cavalry attacks and infantry attacks and had to be broken up by artillery barrages. All these things are relatively new. It, it wasn't the first ever war to feature these things, but we're talking about uh, you know only existing a few years rather than for decades. You've got aircraft strafing enemy positions, dropping bombs, even on enemy cities. All of that shows that there was huge amounts of innovation in World War I. All sides were trying to improve technology to win. They weren't trying to kill their troops as often as possible. That's just a lie. And this is where it turns into Nazi propaganda and the peace movement of the 1960s. You see, the hippies of the 1960s don't generally get put in the same territory as Hitler and the Nazis, but they do have one weird thing in common. It worked to both of their interests to explain World War I as some kind of pointless deadlock, a war that nobody won. A bloody stalemate. But that's not what happened. Fast forwarding to the end of World War I, the, the year of 1918. In the spring of 1918, well, a few months before that, Russia got knocked out of the war. That meant that more than a million German troops on the Russian front could be moved over to the West. And they were retrained uh, into small tactics, uh, small arms tactics, and they became known as stormtroopers. There we go. Stormtroopers don't just come in Star Wars. They also come in World War One as well. 
they would have submachine guns. Uh, they would have automatic pistols. Uh, they would be laden with uh, hand grenades. And their idea was to just keep pushing forwards. Keep the momentum going. Don't stop for anything. And uh, to have other troops behind them mop things up. And what was the Kaiserschlacht happened? It opened with a colossal German artillery volley. So violent, so intense, it was heard in London. So this colossal volley happened, breaking up the Allied front lines. And then the German stormtroopers jumped, uh, jumped forwards and they pushed forward mile after mile. It was a very, very tense moment. It was the time when we get the famous phrase about the British Army to uh, fight where they're standing and our backs are up against the wall. But what happened was that the stormtroopers over the weeks denuded. They didn't all live through every battle. One after another, they died and they weren't easily re replaceable. So the whole Kaiserschlacht campaign ran out of steam. It put in a massive great dent into the Allied lines, but they didn't break through to Paris. That was the critical thing. Once that had happened, that was pretty much the last roll of the dice of the, of the Germans. They just didn't have any more troops. All they could do was sit and defend rather than do any attacks. Whereas by now, the Allies were getting more and more American troops joining the fight. And so what we get after Kaiserschlag sort of stopping and running out of steam, the Allies regroup and you then get what's referred to by historians as the Hundred Days. And this is a thing completely forgotten by people like the Nazis who want to say the whole thing was a failure and the peace movement. You then get a hundred days in a row of victory after victory by the Allies, just pushing forwards again and again, breaking the Hindenburg line, just pushing forwards, no stopping. It's one of the single longest periods of victory that any, any army in any period of history has ever had. And yet it's forgotten. Then we get to the Versailles Treaty. The thing about the Versailles Treaty is it was based on the reparations that the French had to have paid the Germans in the um, Austro, sorry, Austro? Franco-Prussian War um, of 1817-1871. The idea of paying reparations wasn't new. It's just Germany happened to have caused more damage. More on that another time, but the point is that Actually, 1918 was very much a period of movement, and this is shown again in, in Battlefield 1, in, in, in various campaign bits that you have to fight. It also takes you as high as up into the Alps, where you get the Italian army fighting the uh, Austro-Hungarians in the Alps, which was genuinely a thing. During the winters, both sides worked out, rather than trying to blast each other in their trenches in the freezing cold snow up in the, uh, you know, up in the... Uh, high Alps, it was just easier to blast at the snow above them and to uh, basically drown them in, in snow, in, in avalanches. Absolutely horrific way to die, obviously. So World War I, there's an awful lot more going on than what your teacher taught you. One of the last things I'm going to say about it is, uh, and I'm sure I'll do uh, another uh, another podcast on it at some point, but Blackadder. Now, for the record, I adore Blackadder. I, it's great. 
But when the people were writing it and when they were performing it, they were never thinking that it would actually be used as a history teaching tool in schools. For starters, if you're going to be technical about it, it's basically rated 15 because of all the bad language. So I'm not entirely sure you should be showing it to kids. But the point is that when you use the stuff from World War One, it's there as a joke. It's there as a laugh. Now, if it's a starting point, if it's a chance to say, look, it was pretty horrible in the trenches. Now let's look at what really happened. I'm OK with that. But unfortunately, some people are just walk away thinking that <laughs> that uh, Blackadder is almost like a documentary, which Lord knows means what they make of Lord Flashheart then. But uh, I, I digress. But the point is that Blackadder is great fun. It's great entertainment. Like I've said with all these other things, it's a great place to start the conversation about the real history. But if you're hoping that it's the only way to do the history, that your interest stops just there, you get a very, very distorted view. And it just seems to me that of all the topics that get taught in school, all the different eras, it does seem World War I gets the, the short end of the stick. Maybe it's something to do potentially of Remembrance Day, Armistice Day, you know, depending which country it's called slightly different things. We should never forget the men that have died or have fallen for us. OK, uh, there's the whole thing about the white poppy versus the red poppy. I think that when people wear the red poppy, they're not pro-war, but they're recognizing the sacrifice that men have made in war. The white poppy seems to be anti-war. And I would agree with that, except, you know, people didn't die in World War II because they wanted to. They died because they had to fight a defensive war against a very big evil. And the loss of life in World War I was horrific too. But I would argue that the red poppy is the right way to go with that. But it's also somber that, again, we talk about things like the first day of the Somme and not necessarily the fact that overall in the Somme we were able to achieve most of the goals of victory and the Germans said at the end of 1916, they actually, one of the generals actually said, we cannot afford another Somme because it's used up so many German lives as well as British lives. So those are, you know, that's something that tends to be forgotten. It's all rather one-sided, it's all rather po-faced, and it's all rather horrible. I'll leave you with a few little statistics, shall I? So World War One, about 10 million uh, uh, men are meant to have died in World War One. About 60 million are meant to have died in World War Two. So that gives you a context between them. If World War One was a huge waste of destruction and life, well, that means that World War Two was six times that. Also, far, far more civilians died in World War Two than in World War One. World War One was largely fought in fields, away from cities, uh, on the coastlines. People, normal civilians, could get out of the way. It was mainly soldiers who did the dying in World War One, whereas in World War Two you had mass bombardment of cities, etc. Uh, let's not depress you too much with those sorts of information. But the thing I find really interesting is right at the end of World War One, we get what has become known as Spanish flu, even though it originated in America. The reason why it's called Spanish flu is because the Spanish authorities were most honest about death rates. 
But it turns out it started in America and it's American soldiers that brought it over to Europe towards the end of World War One. It then spread like wildfire around the world. It was a colossal global pandemic and it was unusual. This type of flu was unusual because rather than attacking children and old people, it tended to attack healthy young people. And you had all these young men rubbing shoulders with each other, spreading them along train lines. It was an absolute disaster of infection. Ten million people died in World War One. Between 80 and 100 million people died immediately after the war through Spanish flu, influenza. So it's far more lethal than either World War I or World War II. But that bit isn't talked about nearly as much either. All of this swirling from a video game where you can grab your very shonky automatic weapon and try and shoot down a trench. But Battlefield 1, if you haven't given it a go, if you like your video games, if you like your shooters, it's great. It's got this wonderful flavor to it because the guns, don't get me wrong, the guns work, but they don't quite work in the slick way that a more modern shooter would portray weapons. And some of them are quite elaborate and ornate even. So uh, it, it does teach you some history. Uh, it absolutely takes you to some really interesting places in World War One. Uh, I would definitely check it out. It's going to be va valid till the sort of like Christmas 2018 when it, there'll be a there'll be another new battlefield. But I mean, you, you, I'm going to get two years good work, good use out of this game. Um, so there we go. That's Battlefield One. That's Neon this time round. Keep listening in. There'll be more good podcasting history goodness soon. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.